Bill Hardwick is a Dixon native who grew up to become an attorney and a soldier. And after being elected to serve in the Missouri House, the Pulaski County Republican has a lot of thoughts on the art of legislating and some of the big issues his colleagues have tackled early into his tenure. Hardwick joins us next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from the glorious Phelps County metropolis of Rolla, Missouri, St. Louis Public Radio's own Rolla correspondent. I'm Jonathan Alth. Good to be here. And joining us from his office, it looks like his office in Jefferson City. He is a a state representative for Missouri's 122nd district. Bill Hardwick. Thank you, Representative, for for joining us today. Um, Before we get into your life story and some of the issues that you are handling now in the Missouri Capitol, uh, tell us a little bit about what your district encompasses. My district is 122, and it's a portion of Pulaski County, most of the residential part of Fort Leonard Wood, and then the community that sort of relies on Fort Leonard Wood outside of Pulaski County, Waynesville, St. Robert, Richland, Dixon, Lakeway, just those surrounding towns. So it's really small geographically. It's small It's small for a rural district geographically, right? And it's just a portion of that county. And it's a great district to represent, actually. Tell us a little bit about yourself. When I was looking at your, your house biography, it is one of the more impressive biographies that I have encountered of somebody who has decided to run for the Missouri legislature. Perhaps that's me sucking up to you before we pepper you with extremely hostile questions later on. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, because I think the listeners would be interested to hear about your journey to Jefferson City. Yeah, I went to uh, Dixon High School in Dixon, Missouri. And my dad was a construction worker. And my mom uh, worked some jobs in the medical field and in kind of the home health business. And then eventually she became a teacher. And when I gra- and when I was in high school, I worked jobs too, construction jobs, jobs that I could get, you know, kind of paid for my own, my own car, whatever. Went to Mizzou after that, joined the Army National Guard. I was a quarrying specialist in the Army National Guard. So I was like 18, 19 years old. And they were like, here, take this stack of dynamite on top of this hill and, and smash in this hill. And, you know, and I'd, I'd be 18, like stuffing a hole on the side of the hill with dynamite. It was and back then, I thought it was pretty cool, but now I'm kind of like, I was 18 years old. I'm not sure that was the, you know, I trust an 18-year-old with that kind of responsibility now. Did that, went to Mizzou, graduated, um, went to OCS, became an engineer officer in the Missouri National Guard, engineer school at Fort Leonard Woods, um, did some time on active duty, deployed, went to Iraq. I got to Iraq, my first job was a counter IED sort of intelligence analyst with the engineer brigade there, studying patterns for... Uh, attacks and how different devices were designed to attack soldiers. Did that for a while. I had a seat at Mizzou Law School before I deployed and uh, they held my seat. And as soon as I got back from deployment, I went to Mizzou Law School. Uh, Did that, got my Juris Doctor, great experience. Met some really 
you know, each one of these parts of my life, I meet people that I think are my friends my whole life. Made some great friends there. Finished law school, went back to Pulaski County. Was assistant prosecutor for about three years until I got a job for the Department of Defense. Did that as a civil attorney, the administrative attorney for the Army. Uh, appointed as a special assistant U.S. attorney, prosecuted cases there for a couple of years, and then uh, went to Command General Staff College. And then you can't you can't run for office and work for the federal government. So I left the federal government, went into private practice, started a little uh, private practice uh, kind of boutique solo situation there, and uh, ran for state representative. And that's pretty much my adult biography. Representative, your history in the military, do you think that is something that is critical to representing your district or just something that's beneficial? I think it's a big help. Um, not everyone who's represented Fort Leonard before has served in the Army, and, and individuals who haven't have done a really fantastic job representing a military district. So I don't think it's a, a, a critical criteria, but I think it's useful to be able to speak the language, to kind of know the issues, know the difference between exclusive federal jurisdiction and state jurisdiction, what the Army's role is in our state and how it interacts with our state. I think that's helpful, right? That's beneficial. Being a veteran was certainly helpful in Pulaski County. There's such a high concentration of veterans in my district. So that was that was a positive. And I think generally military service is a good primer for political service to understand sort of how bureaucracies are right and not get frustrated by the by the magnitude of all the different interests working sometimes against each other, sometimes in concert. But to understand that's just that's just kind of the way it is. Right. There's all these different groups and there's this huge, you know, gigantic um, system, right? And it just kind of operates. And then you have to figure out how to operate in that system. And I think military officers learn that pretty quickly if they're going to be successful. And uh, that's translatable. And then also, I think the military is a people business too. You And it's how people don't think that way if they're not in the military, that it's a people business. They think it's kind of like, yeah, get drop it, give me 20 or whatever, kind of a, a strict business. But it is. It's interpersonal skills. It's paying attention to people, how they're the whole person personally, with their family, with their career goals, with their individual goals. And try to figure out what what it is that makes that person work and drive, right? And that's essential to good leadership. And politics is kind of like that too, right? To understand your constituents, what their concerns are, what their fears are, whether it's national politics, whether it's the economy at Fort Leonard Wood, whether it's what's going on in Jefferson City, education, whatever, just to try to figure out why people are motivated the way they're motivated and what you can do to help them be successful. That's a pretty useful skill. And I think that's translatable from the military or politics for sure. The items that get the most attention in Jefferson City are the ones that are kind of the big picture items that affect the entire state or maybe even have federal and national uh, impact. But the people who elected you are very much expect you to look out for their interests in that geographical region. So I'm just a couple of issues that I'm wondering if you could comment on, like, like first, higher education. While you're a Mizzou grad, and I'm, sure. I know you're very proud of that, you also know that Mizzou gets the bulk of the money from the state, and programs like uh, Missouri S&T and Rolla or all of the different schools that offer uh, degrees at the Truman Education Center on post at Fort Leonard Wood, a lot of those programs would like to get more funding. So when, when you're kind of put in that position where you're competing against other districts for resources for your district, how do you plan to approach that? Sure. Okay. So that is also a function of government. And the, the I think our main constitutional duty is to pass that budget. And so there's always X amount of dollars and there are more, there's more need and more desire to be resourced and funded than the dollars that we have at any given time. And our budget looks okay now, I think, largely because, or partly because, um, 
we have the supplement from the Federal CARES Act and, and the, the parts of the federal budget that are helping, or federal uh, allocation that are helping our budget. But um, there's always the point where if I had infinite resources, I could almost solve every single problem in the state. And we don't, right? So I always look at ways, A, that we can grow the pie. We can grow the number of resources that exist. So I'm interested in policies that, that grow the tax base, that allow people to climb the socioeconomic ladder, to get out of poverty, to be able to succeed more, and they're paying more taxes, they won't be paying taxes. There are more engines of our economy being driven around the state. So if there's an opportunity to revitalize a portion of St. Louis or a portion of Kansas City or benefit education there, or there's a program at Mizzou that will allow us to have more rural doctors in Phelps County, Pulaski County, Laclede County, then I'm interested in that, right? That does have an interest in my district. So each district does have an insular interest, but every district and every county is part of the same state, right? And we're all affected by one another. We all live in the same life, the same society. So I'm cognizant of the fact that policies that are statewide, those big policies, maybe vicariously and maybe eventually, they do have an impact on my district. And my ability to be effective in promoting some of those policies and being involved and controlling how those policies are, even if it's in the nuances, translates into my effectiveness to start bringing back direct results to my district also. So by participating in the things that people around the state are interested in, it does make me more effective representative. And I don't know if that fully answered your question. I can think about it a little more. Well, that's, there, your, part of your question too is that if I, if I have this, if I have $1 and I have a need for $2, do I decide if it goes to Pulaski County or to Columbia or St. Louis? Okay, so, and that's kind of my answer. If I could figure out a way that it benefits Pulaski County, maybe even directly, then I'd be supportive of those allocations, right? And part of that is the give and take of politics. Okay, St. Louis got something or Mizzou got something, but I get something for Waynesville and St. Robert down the road. So it's a more complex calculation than just a single transaction, right? It's a very complex multi-year transaction, actually. That's awfully magnanimous of you, but you grew up <laughs> you you grew up in Dixon and 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 you've lived in this area for most of your life. You know what outstate feels like a lot of times when yeah. it feels like every you know the the vast majority of the state resources are going to Kansas City, St. Louis, sometimes Jefferson City or Columbia. Um, and then when when something does come to outstate, like for example, in the last few weeks we've heard about vaccination events, the state is accused of of uh, of giving undue uh, look at rural areas just because they happen to be doing something that isn't going quite as well in the urban areas. Um, so how do you balance all of that? Where where we you know we kind of have a chip on our shoulder a little bit out here, and we we, we do kind of have a what about us attitude. How do you take that to the Capitol and blend that with, yes, but we want to make the whole state better? One of my favorite movies is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't know if you're familiar with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was kind of a big deal back in the day. Also a veteran, by the way. Vietnam veteran. So Jimmy Stewart, um, he goes to Washington and he finds that it's all these interests and like these transactions, right? And he's there for his state, you know? And he's gonna like he's gonna make a stand, and he's gonna he's gonna blow the system up. And and some of those kind of cynical older guys are like, man, we admire your purity. We had the same idealism. When we started politics. And and Jimmy Stewart makes a stand, and you know the the, the scandal is is revealed, and you know it, and all is good. And I always wondered when I watched that movie. I love that movie, and I and I do want to emulate some of the purity of Jimmy Stewart's character in that movie. But I always wondered what Jimmy Stewart's career was like over the next six years after that movie took place 
or what he was like 18 years later or 20 years later, right? And so was he really effective at, in the long run of bringing resources back to his district? Was he really effective in doing the sort of deal-making and compromise? And I'm not talking about compromising your values, the core principles that you got elected on that, 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 that create your political identity. I'm not talking about compromising those things. I'm talking about compromising on, well, if, you know, if Springfield gets this now, then, then maybe, you know, later on, I know that there's an opportunity for Pulaski County to get this now. I'm talking about those sort of compromises, right? Was he really effective in doing that? And so over a 30 year career, you know, did Jimmy Stewart bring home positive results for his state? Did he, uh, did he make, was he part, a participant in some of the big legislation that made a, a big difference, right? The huge packages, the relief packages, or did Jimmy Stewart's the character, did his senator, did that senator just become more marginalized as years went on? I don't know, right? And that's, I don't know, I have no idea. And that's part of the, what I think about in politics is that if I come in and it's like my way or nothing, right? Pulaski County will get what they need to get. They will get these resources now. And that's all I care about. I don't care about Poplar Bluff. I don't care about whatever county. Then am I really doing a good job for Pulaski County? Probably not, right? I'm probably doing a better job. I'm pro the, probably the best way I could be an effective representative is to make the best relationships with the most people I can, right? And, and to be a diligent and solid participant in the legislative process, knowing my stuff, knowing what makes a bill better, knowing what makes a bill not good, knowing when compromise is okay and when compromise is not okay, and, and being involved in the creation of the different coalitions that get formed for each piece of legislation. And the Republican Party is interesting too, right? Because it's not a completely monolithic coalition. On each bill, you can notice a different coalition will form, right? Around different things. And then that coalition will dissolve. And then for a new issue, a brand new coalition will be created, right? And so being able to go from, not go from, being able to um, involve myself in a positive, meaningful way, in a helpful way, and the different alignments of those coalitions for different issues in the Capitol, probably what makes me a much better effective representative for my district over the long haul, right? And so even though, and even though in my heart, I kind of feel like um, Jimmy Stewart, right? That I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make a difference. And I'm here to make a difference for sure. I'm thinking about that if everything's about me and my and me and my grandiose moment, well, my political career is not a moment. My political career, career is uh, however many years, right? Eight years, right? Of doing all these different things. And then instead of just one giant strike at the board, right? It's like a canvas. It's like a mosaic of all the things that I accomplished in politics. And so I can't, and so what I, as a freshman, especially, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't want to try to, uh, you know, create a great charge. I want to paint a mosaic of positive results over hopefully what is eight years. And I'm patient about doing that. And that, and, but the, but the central piece, this foundational piece of doing that is to create very genuine and positive relationships with as many people in this business as I can. We'll be right back after this quick break with state representative Bill Hardwick. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Bill Hardwick. He is a Republican from Pulaski County. I want to talk about a couple of issues that you have encountered 
specifically, most notably the Second Amendment Preservation Act, which was passed, I think, about a week or two ago out of the House. Now, we had Senator Brian Williams, who is a Democrat from University City on the show last week, talking about how much he disliked the bill and how much he thinks it's unconstitutional and bad. Uh, I, I do think it is worthwhile for our audience to hear the other perspective of why uh, people feel like this bill is necessary, because as I mentioned on last week's show, there's a very good chance that this bill could be passed and signed into law, unlike 2013, when there was a Democratic governor that vetoed it and there weren't enough Republicans to override it. So if you could explain what this bill does and why you feel it's necessary. So what the bill does, essentially, is that it says if there's a federal law or federal executive order and and the bill has some definitions of what we consider to be unconstitutional that violates the Second Amendment, that our law enforcement, our resources are not going to participate and support the enforcement or execution of that law in our state, right? So if there's a executive order promulgated by the president, President Biden, and it's a conversation or requirement for something that our police officers in the state are not going to um, be a part of that. They're not going to participate. Um, so I, the argument that I hear most often for why it's unconstitutional is that it violates the supremacy clause. And the supremacy clause of the Constitution says this Constitution and the laws in furtherance thereof, and that it delineates different kinds of laws in furtherance thereof the Constitution, shall be the supreme law of the land. So to, in order to make an effective argument that SAPA is not unconstitutional, that in effect just reiterates the Constitution, I think I need to make the point about the differences in how we view fed, vertical federalism and the relationship between the state and the federal government. Okay, so we so it's clear in the Constitution that the federal government has certain powers. In Article One, the powers to Congress are written out, they're enumerated, and that includes interstate commerce. And through interstate commerce, the federal government is able to um, require background checks for firearms, right? require um, guns aren't possessed in certain areas, airports, things like that, or do screenings at airports. It's even through interstate commerce that President Biden has argued that his mass mandate for taxi cabs, right, and for public transit is, is constant because Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. And that and that power was, you know, delegated to the president in certain ways. Just one, one kind of interesting note, though, for all you constitutional scholars out there, while Article 1 enumerates powers for Congress, Article 2 does not. Article two, and it was specifically written this way, does not say the enumerated powers of the president. It says the executive power of the president, the executive power is given, is invested in the president, right? And he shall take care to enforce the laws of our country. So the president has this nebulous executive power. We don't exactly know what it is. Each president in different points in history has defined differently what they thought that executive power is. But we do know for a fact that there are boundaries that Congress's power is enumerated and then the president's power, even though is nebulous as an executive power, has boundaries on it, right? So uh, during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, he always tried to define that boundary in a different way. And through and different and different courses away, the Supreme Court said, well, the president can't do that. You know, this this goes beyond your power, you know, and would help kind of rein back Franklin Roosevelt's exercise that executive power. So while the Constitution gives the federal government certain power, their power is not unlimited. It can't be unlimited. And the states have certain power. And their, and their role is not as a subordinate. They are not an employee of the federal government. And that's been well defined in case law, mainly by the Rehnquist Court. I'll agree with that. I'll grant you that. Mainly after Rehnquist became Chief Justice and, 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 and also John Roberts, after the Sebelius case in 2012, Roberts said that too with Medicaid expansion. 
that the federal government could not make Missouri expand Medicaid. It had to be Medicaid, Missouri's own decision, right? Those are well-established points. And so SAP is basically a codification of that in Missouri law. It's a reiteration of that case law, that if there's a federal program, the sheriffs, the highway patrol, the police are not subordinate agencies of the federal agencies, right? They have their own system of authority to answer to, which is the Missouri Constitution and Missouri statutes. SAPA doesn't invalidate federal law. Federal background laws, ATF agents, FBI agents, they still have authority and jurisdiction in Missouri. They just have concurrent jurisdiction, which, you know, back to your point, Jonathan, a phrase that I learned pretty well working as a special assistant U.S. attorney for Leonard Wood, that they act just like, you know, a soldier who leaves Fort Leonard Wood. They're always under the authority of the UCMJ, right? The Army always has authority over them, but they're in Missouri. They also have Missouri law under them. And so that's the way police officers are in Missouri, right? They are empowered by Missouri law. What they could do is defined by Missouri law. And when they're in Missouri, Missouri law is over them, but also federal law is too. But it's a misnomer and it's probably a disservice when we're teaching civics to think of the state and the state executive departments as subordinate political entities to the federal government. That's not the case, right? They exercise dual sovereignty and both of them are, are subservient to the constitution itself. And I, I, I'm not going to get into a, a constitutional argument with you because I'm going to lose. But let's take the sh- let, let's take the should, you know, the the ought off the table and go to the should. Sure. <laughs> um, is that that the the way the law is written now, state and local law enforcement would not have to enforce, let's say, the 1968 Gun Control Act that prohibits people who've been convicted of domestic violence from owning a handgun. Now, you can say that, well, the FBI and ATF can still come in, but if a rural gun store in Pulaski County is selling firearms to people who have domestic abuse convictions, what level does that have to get to to actually get the federal government to put resources in it to go after that when the the local sheriff's office knows who that guy is, knows who the gun owner is, and can make the choice, I'm not going to enforce it. So let, let's take the constitutional argument off the table and just look at the, okay. is it a good idea? Yeah, So no, and that's a good place to be now. Because I, so, uh, I think it's constitutional to do it, to, to write a law that way, the way it's written. Not nullification, I'm not saying nullification is constitutional, but SAPA I think is constitutional. Okay, so it works, there's a constitutional argument at least for it. Now where you're going is a really good space. Now that we've taken, now that we've, so let's forget that, is it a good or a bad policy? And that's the kind of discussion I wanna have. What's a good or bad policy? It's good for um, our constituents, it's good for law enforcement, it's good for the safety of Missouri. So a federal firearms dealer has a federal firearms license, right? They're, they're federally licensed in order to at Bass Pro Shop or Walmart or Dick Sporting Goods or wherever. So their, their ability to sell you that firearm is, is contingent upon them following those federal rules. And the reason why Congress has a power to regulate that is because, and it's a Scalia opinion, actually, it's a Scalia opinion on marijuana, that pretty much all sales of things in the United States affect interstate commerce. So, okay, got it. He still has to do the background check. The form still has to be filled out. Um, you know, are you a felon? Have been you have you been adjudicated mentally incompetent? You know, do you have a conviction for domestic violence under the Lautenberg Amendment? He still has to do that. That's unchanged. Besides that, that's actually the strictest uh, firearms control, gun control, anti-Second Amendment, whatever term you want to use. That federal firearms dealership background check is probably the strictest part of Missouri law. That I not Missouri law. That Missouri that occurs in Missouri for firearms. Police officers still don't enforce 
federal law. So if there's somebody violating the Lautenberg Act, if it's a, there is a Missouri analog to domestic violence conviction or, or felon or adjudication mentally convicted, that police officer does the arrest based on state law. And prosecutor in Missouri can only bring a charge under violation of state law. So should we have an analog? That's a different question. Should we have a state analog to the federal Lautenberg Act, right, for domestic violence or for ex partes or for uh, victims of abuse? Probably, right? And we do to a lot of degree, right? We do. So probably, and that's a good discussion to have. Okay, so should should these felonies uh, preclude you from having a firearm? Should these felonies that are nonviolent or maybe technical felonies, right, should somebody have their firearms rights eventually? That's a really good discussion for us to have. But what happens is, so a police officer would arrest somebody based on a state law violation, and this is the way it was before. And maybe there's a federal agency that signs, okay, not only do they violate a state law, but they're in violation of a federal law too. And then that federal agency, maybe that U.S. attorney and that county prosecutor can have a discussion about do they want to have, do they both want to try to proceed? Maybe does the state government want to turn this over to the to the feds and let them prosecute? Turnover is a bad word, right? Do they want to just sort of say, we're going to not pursue it, not proceed, and you could pursue it? Because again, and this is all this is the way it was with the prosecution before SAPA, and it will be after SAPA. The state prosecutor can bring any charge under state law that he or she wants to. And the federal prosecutor could bring any charge any charge that he or she wants to, they want to, right? And neither of them are precluded, and neither of them have to ask each other permission about if they want to proceed. It was always like that, right? The state prosecutor can always enforce state law. The federal prosecutor can always enforce state law. They just, as a courtesy to each other, may say, or for and for the interest of finite resources, like you said earlier, may say, well, you know, the, the your federal agency, the FBI, ATF, they have better resources. You guys are better equipped. We're not going to prosecute, but we know you guys are, right? And vice versa can happen. And that happens here. It'll still happen here. Both jurisdictions that act concurrently in the state of Missouri can enforce law based on the substantive criminal law that applies. And I'm sure there will be some discussion about how resources get applied. But what will happen in Missouri if SAP has signed a law that Missouri will not dedicate resources in law enforcement to things that we think violate the Constitution. So it's almost like a truism, right? We're saying we're not, you know, we're not going to do anything that's unconstitutional. We think that's fine with the Constitution. What's unconstitutional? A whole different argument we just talked about, right? So I think that's okay. I don't think it actually endangers anybody because there's not there's not a single criminal substantive law that it repeals in Missouri or that it nullifies at the federal level. All the federal substantive criminal law is still in effect in Missouri. It's just if we think in Missouri that there's a order or there's an enforcement or, you know, an executive order, which is basically, you know, how I'm directing people who are enforcing law to do their job as their, as the, as the executive, the chief executive, right? If we, if we think that violates the constitution, like a impediment to firearm, it's like a registration, like a confiscation, that our sheriffs, that our police aren't going to be arm in arm with the federal agents who are doing that. And that's probably okay, right? That's probably a good conversation to have too. The... Clearly, the supporters of this act, they are motivated by the concern slash fear that the Biden administration is going to overreach its power and infringe on their Second Amendment rights. Sure. The people who are opposed to this are under the fear that this means that gun laws will be more lax because there could be a, a county by county, city by city interpretation of the of, of what you know has to be followed and what doesn't. Or that the delay in determining whether they does does have to be followed or not will put a firearm in the hands of somebody that's going to do something bad with it. Now, does this really come down to which fear is legitimate and which isn't? 
Well, so I don't, I don't see much changing at the local prosecution level. We already have, you know, X amount 115, 114 plus one, you know, county prosecutors and a city attorney. And they already are the Supreme or the chief law enforcement decision maker in their jurisdiction, right? If they could bring in the attorney general, if they choose to, but only that prosecutor can decide to bring a charge. They're already interpreting which facts apply to, to substantive criminal law and how they and how they think that their constituents and their communities want to prioritize the enforcement of criminal law. That already happens. And since criminal law is not changing, I don't see the way they're going about doing their business changing. They're going to answer to their voters for the decisions they made, whether or not to bring a charge, right? So, and but there's already a little bit of difference. You know, um, the Kansas City prosecutor a year or two ago, she said she wasn't going to prosecute um, marijuana charges, right? Or certain situations that it didn't meet certain criteria. And some people say it's okay, or it's, it's legal for to do it. Some people say it's not. But the fact remains, there's different nuances, right? There was already a nuance in. So before Missouri got rid of its concealed carry requirement. So it was a felony to conceal a firearm on or about your person. So if I took the a pistol and I put it under my seat and I got pulled over, was it concealed on or about my person? Was that a felony? Well, some police officers and some prosecutors said no. And some said you had to put it on your seat and it wasn't a felony. There was already a fact there that has a little bit of vagueness to it, right? Or excuse me, there was a law that the term of it had a little vagueness to it. And we had different lawyers and different judges interpreting it different ways. That's how the law always happens. The legislature, and, and no matter how crazy intelligent we are, no matter how smart we are, right, we can't envision every possible factual situation because there are an infinite number of factual permutations that could, could occur, right? And there's no, way for us, there's no way for us to envision an infinite number of different nuances or permutations or something. So there has to be some local enforcement by the prosecutor, some local interpretation by our circuit judges, and maybe those things need to be harmonized by our Supreme Court at some point, right? And I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable that there are things that, that there's a law that's passed. It could, be a, it could be a good law, but I don't know all the possible things that could happen, all the facts, patterns that it has to be applied to, right? And I never know that. I can just be confident that the law as written is good and, and has a positive result, and it reflects the values of Missourians, what they want. And what they want, I, and what I think, at least in my district, and I've talked to a lot of voters in my district and a lot of the, the rural conservative reps have too. In my district, I think what a lot of people want is they want to have the conversation at least about in what ways are is our state going to either push back on the Biden administration or tell the Biden administration no sometimes or work with the Biden administration. What does that relationship look like? And we're, and we're making a lot of focus on the Second Amendment here. But if you think back to when President Trump was sworn into office four years ago. Many states had that same conversation. They just had it on different issues that were that were important to their political coalitions, right? They had the same conversation about what President Trump can do in terms of integration, in terms of travel enforcement, in terms of whatever, right? Same conversation. How can you know? And and even within the Justice Department, Sally Yates had the same conversation about, well, I think this violates the Constitution this way. How do you do it, right? And and and, and maybe it's more pronounced now because of our very vocal media cycle. But I think if we were to look back in every administration, a change from conservative to liberal, Democrat to Republican, you would see some, some conversation, the state who's, who's, who is, uh, has a majority coalition of the party that's out of power nationally, begins to have a conversation with the federal government about what their powers are. And, and by the way, not to go back to the constitutional thing, but you're, you got a really good criminal law point. And I just completely ignored it and dismissed it. So it's not an issue. And I went back to what I'm 
passionate about was the constitutional audit. So I'm sorry about that. But I'll say that to the point too. I think that's good too, right? That's what the the that's what the Constitution envisions. It envisions that a new president comes into power, whether it's President Trump, President Biden, President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, where we get a lot of this case law from, right? There was there was a lot of pushback over the Brady Bill and over the things that President Clinton did his first two years in office. And there's a lot of case law over lines today about that. But that but that okay, you have a power. The state is going to, to call you and question you on that power. If that power is if that power is constitutional, if it's allowable, if it's in your nebulous power as the executive. And that and each time it's the other party, they say the other party is kind of ridiculous for asking those questions. But I tend to think in the long run, the history of the republic, always having a, a new a new coalition, a national coalition come to power, and then the states that have kind of a disparate interest questioning that, that probably gives us a pretty good equilibrium for our society. Probably. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Speaking today, and we're looking forward to having you back in subsequent years to talk about more than just your biography. Uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jonathan, how can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? At Jonathan All. And I don't think you're on Twitter, but are you on any other social media apparatuses or do you have any way for people to get a hold of you if they want to talk with you about issues or, or, or anything like that? Sure. It's easy to find me on Facebook. I'm Bill Hardwick. I think I'm the only Bill Hardwick representative on Facebook. And then, you know, as always, people can email me or call me at my office here in the Capitol. And I'm happy to talk with anybody about any issue that concerns them. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. 